tipping points. As climate change turns from forecast to fact, what are the tipping points we need to watch for? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investment at Joe Hambro Capital Management in Regnum. My guest today is Professor Tim Lenton from the University of Exeter. Tim is a Professor of Earth System Science. He leads Exeter's Global Systems Institute and is a world expert on tipping points, especially as they relate to climate science. We'll be looking at those tipping points today, some bad, some good, and in the context of climate change and the outcomes at COP27. Tim, welcome and thank you for giving us your time today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. It's a pleasure to have you back in conversation. Before we start on the conversation proper, I, I should declare that uh, Joe Hambro has a formal commercial relationship with the University of Exeter, where we're collaborating on building forward-looking climate models for measuring the GHG emissions of companies, something we're very excited about and I think will be groundbreaking. But... Tipping points, Tim, you know, we've just finished the COP27 uh, with outcomes that are probably not meeting some of our ambitions. And yet, I think you have a, a more optimistic interpretation of not necessarily what's coming out of the political forum, but maybe what's quietly going on on the ground around us. So first of all, maybe if you could say, give, give us a viewpoint on COP27. Uh, from you as an academic, but then let, let's talk to maybe about where we can have some grounds for optimism. <laughs> Absolutely, Andrew. I, I I didn't have particularly high hopes for COP27, and uh, I'm not sure even those hopes were met. Um, if, there was some recognition, at least in the closing statement, about the risk that tipping points pose, which is the first time We've heard that from one of these um, COP agreements, but it was rather disappointing, to say the least, on um, the crucial challenge of accelerating action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But there are reasons for optimism. They just lie elsewhere. I think they lie out in the real economy of emissions reduction because um, renewable sources of power are the cheapest options over much of the world already, in at least in a new for new comparison, if you're um, at the point of installing new energy generation. And for the first time in 2022, the data would say that um, the growth in energy demand globally has been exceeded by the growth in renewable energy capacity. So I think that means at least in the power sector, we've seen a decline in greenhouse gas emissions there. And it means I think we're at or passing peak fossil fuels and things can only accelerate from here on in because those renewables are kind of growing at 10% year on year. And I think we're getting to some really interesting commercial tipping points. You know, China, 22% of new car sales, are electric vehicles. I think it's 18% in the UK and even in the US, they've got up to 5%. So these are sort of real world economic activities, aren't they? They are. And the, I'm glad you brought up the electric vehicle one because that's sector, you know, just road transport and most of it is cars. 
um, is about at least 15% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So we saw that tipping point to electric vehicles first coming out of Norway, but now it's clearly spreading across some much larger economies. And as, as the number of electric vehicles and crucially the number of batteries getting made increases, the cheaper the next battery has got to make in a classic economy of scale. And because there aren't as many moving parts in an electric vehicle, it means as the battery prices come down, EVs should be cheaper to manufacture than internal combustion engine vehicles um, pretty soon in multiple major economies. So they should definitely be cheaper to buy at that point. And there's another advantage to them as a consumer, the driver of an EV, is that that lack of moving parts mean that servicing and other charges are far, far lower. I've been three years of having an EV and it's not had any servicing whatsoever. So it's great. I love it from that sense. Of, and it's great to drive as well. So uh, I always say that uh, once you've driven an electric vehicle, you know, a, a petrol or diesel seems so 19th century. There's almost <laughs> no going back. Yeah, yeah. Ironically, at the turn of the 20th century, when we saw the shift from horse-drawn carriages to uh, automobiles, which happened first in the US in the first kind of decade of the 20th century, uh, about partway through that, about 30% of the vehicles were battery electric. It's just that the internal combustion engine won the and Ford's Model T production line and so on won the day at the time. Are, um, and we've, in many ways, the electric vehicle's been trying to um, find its tipping point ever since. We've used the phrase tipping points. I just wonder whether for our listeners who might not have had as much experience in this area as you and a little bit myself, you know, how you would sort of characterise what a tipping point is and what what to watch out for in when analysing them, maybe even what their power is from for people like me as an investor. So the crucial idea or concept behind a tipping point is that of reinforcing feedback within a system. So sometimes change within a system provokes a response that feeds back on the initial change and amplifies it. That does not necessarily lead to a tipping point or runaway change. But if it's strong enough, it can. So this is true in a whole range of complex systems. So this is what underlies tipping points. So if we take a kind of um, simple example of the fire alarm goes off and uh, one person runs to the exit in panic, if that triggers another two people to follow them, that will trigger another four, eight, 16, and we'll have a runaway positive feedback. We'll have a stampede. Um, if it were the case that, you know, two people running for the exit only triggered one more person to run for the exit, we wouldn't have a stampede. Both would be amplifying feedback, but it's the first case that's that kind of um, self-propelling change. And it's that kind of self-propelling change that's underneath the bad tipping points in the climate. Like uh, we're seeing, we think we're very close to or past a tipping point for loss of major ice sheets like Greenland. And in the case of Greenland, the amplifying feedback is as you melt the ice sheet, the altitude of the surface drops, and that tends to put it into warmer air, which accelerates the melting. Classic amplifier. But in the good news stories we're talking about, 
we've got several really strong amplifying feedbacks and we've touched on economies of scale. The more solar panels that make, you make, the cheaper the next one gets to make. Um, same is true for those batteries or the battery electric vehicles and for the wind turbines. And that one's pretty strong uh, feedback in terms of bringing the price down. But there's also what we call learning by doing. Whenever you know you have a new innovation, people get better at making it the more practice they get. And it's not just making stuff, it's doing stuff as well. We get better at doing new things the more we do them. And in technology, another crucial feedback, a new technology comes along, other innovation and technologies tend to come along that make the parent technology even more useful than that would be like electric vehicles and charging networks as a reinforcing feedback. And the reason these are really exciting for investors is they're very inefficiently discounted into stock prices. And if anybody wants a, uh, an example, we can go back to 2006 and the arrival of the smartphone by a relatively small company called Apple at the time, which totally disrupted the incumbent Nokia and the relative price shift in those two brands was quite dramatic in the space of just five years. And that's what we mean about tipping points in a commercial sense, is that these can be have very profound uh, implications for uh, people involved in these activities. Absolutely, Andrew. Whilst one thing is gaining on a kind of exponential growth curve, uh, something else is usually falling at an accelerating rate as well. And, you know, it's very easy in, when discussing climate change to succumb to you know, pessimism and you know, outright despair in some cases. But, you know, the, the, many of the tipping points that you and I have talked about actually do give some room for, for optimism. You know, you, you've talked about um, uh, EVs and the, the changes there. But, you know, the, behind that is the material science, which is now catching up with the, the theoretical science. I wonder if you sort of might talk about some of the, um, you know, the, you know the, the catalysts for you know, I think you call it uh, uh, cascading tipping points, the super leverage that we can get from this innovation. Yes, absolutely. So it's like um, we're dealing with a complex system when we're dealing with society and, and the economy. And like any complex system, there are multiple subsystems and they tend to be interacting. Um, and over in the climate system, another complex system, we see the risk of bad tipping point cascades. You know, you tip one thing, it increases the likelihood of tipping another, but it's another bad thing in the climate. But over in the economy, it's more like uh, the possibility of positive tipping cascades, which we've begun to map out. So if we start with our example that we're seeing this exponential growth of renewable energy and also of electrification of transport, those two things reinforce each other because renewable electricity is the cheapest electricity there's ever been and it's only going to be getting cheaper. So that if you get ever cheaper electricity, it's a real incentive to electrify transport and everything else. But the one thing that you need to solve with a renewable energy dominated power grid is um, when you want to have a cup of tea and switch the kettle on is not necessarily when the sun's shining or the wind's blowing. So you need cheap storage uh, in the grid and cheap batteries coming from the kind of exponential growth of uh, electric vehicles 
is a key enabler for the full switch to renewable energy. So those two are feeding back on each other in a reinforcing sense and a little mini tipping cascade. But recently, we've been working with the think tank Systemic and mapping out how these cascades could happen elsewhere and connected across the economy. And hydrogen as a, uh, an area is an interesting one. So green hydrogen production, which you essentially make with electricity splitting water with a, a thing called an electrolyzer. The first market for green hydrogen, we think, is in fertilizer for green ammonia, we would call it in that case. And actually, with the current gas price, it's renewably produced green ammonia fertilizers cheaper than fossil fuel fertilizer. Um, but as that uh, demand and production grows for that uh, end use of green hydrogen, we'll get the economies of scale that bring down the price of green hydrogen production. The electrolyzers will get cheaper and so on. That will open up a market for the next key sector for green hydrogen, which is probably, again, actually green ammonia in shipping as a fuel for ships. And then as that creates more economies of scale, it'll bring cost competitiveness for green hydrogen in steel production, direct reduction of iron in steel production. And as you go through that cascade of tipping points, you're going through sectors that are worth sort of 2% of greenhouse gas emissions, to then another 3% of greenhouse gas emissions, and then with steel, about 7% of greenhouse gas emissions. So it could be what my friend Simon Sharp coined as a, um, a upward scaling positive tipping cascade. And we're talking now in terms of the super leverage points being the places where finance, policy, or both could intervene, not just to tip one sector, but to potentially trigger this cascading tipping um, across the economy. Yes, and that bringing together of finance, policy, and uh, science is, does make for an, ex, uh, an exciting combination, but it really does show that when we're talking about this, it, it isn't about political stance, it's about real economics, it's mm. about real business model, transformation and some some real opportunities you know the the competition in the ev space is hotting up very nicely you know it's not just uh, tesla as the brand that everybody refers to now there's a multiplicity and competition is just driving innovation in battery technology i think we'll see in the next three to five years quite quite a transition in that industry and i think we must we need to remind ourselves that it's in a, it's the feedbacks involving innovation that are absolutely crucial as well and strongly reinforcing. If we cast our minds back into the history books of the Industrial Revolution and right back to Adam Smith and the basic, his core theory of growth, it hinged entirely on the idea of entrepreneurship and innovation, then driving um uh, division of labor within the factory, if you like, and innovation, innovation, division of labor, then driving up, uh, driving down cost per unit of production, driving up profit that was then reinvested in innovation. So um, it's kind of economics 101 almost, but it, we're interestingly been living through a time where in some major economies, uh, you could tell by the number of patents being filed that innovation had a systematic decline in the long term, which was surely a bad sign over the last, what was it, 
tens of years and now it's kicking i hope to be able to say it's kicking back in again because we really need that reinforcing feedback of innovation breeding innovation breeding these exponentially growing uh, solutions that accelerate that reduction in greenhouse gas emissions well listeners can uh, tune into some of our other podcasts with our my, my investment colleagues where we talk about that uh, the reason for that lack of innovation and that could very well have been central bank monetary policy where you drive down the cost of capital to nearly zero mm. and guess what you encourage speculation over mm. innovation you um, you expect you uh, you encourage financial engineering over capital formation so ironically the rise of interest rates and to a more normal level might very well be that spur the driving innovation being applied in the real world. So yeah, there's a, there's another root, right, reason for optimism out of the pest, current pessimism. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if you might sort of yeah change direction a little bit and talk about the different pathways to transition. You know, we had all the world leaders in uh, Egypt for COP27, um, and we you know finally had some hope of a. A, a fund for poorer nations who are going to be at the uh, forefront of the uh, you know the, the pain and the need for adaptation from climate change. But I just wonder if you might be able to talk a little bit about some of these these different national transition pathways because they, you know the challenges are immense and they're very different between China and Brazil and the mm-hmm. Europe and the US. Um, I just wonder what, what your thoughts were on, on that when you look at it at the national level. Yeah, so I tend to, as an earth system thinker, you tend to zoom in from the global and then you recognise that diversity um, between countries in terms of uh, when and where and how they might tip economically in this desirable direction. And that's, in the bigger picture, that diversity is perhaps quite a good thing because it means that there'll be some groups and coalitions of nations that will have a shared vested interest in tipping a particular transition sooner and there'll be others who may be resisting it but if enough um, capital moves everybody else will be forced to follow eventually so one might think about electric vehicles for instance and one might um, hypothesize that the those who have the keen interest in the tipping point happening first would be China because they won't outcompete Germany on fossil fuel vehicles, but they stand a chance with electric vehicles, as they, I think they're beginning to demonstrate. Um, the EU has a broad interest because of its progressive policy in the EV transition, and California does as well, after many decades of pushing for zero emission vehicle mandates and so on. And you definitely, if you had those three massive blocks uh, kind of, getting together to put in policy incentives, et cetera, um, to push that transition sooner, everybody else would definitely follow because they sell more than half the cars in the world combined. You probably don't need all of those three to agree at the level of doing a coordinated action, but that's a classic case in point where it's clear who who's got a shared interest in making change happen first. And what I like about that way of thinking is we're not expecting, 
or trying to hope to get everybody to agree, agree on everything, which is the fatal flaw, I think, in the framing of the whole climate negotiation process. It's a council of despair if you want to wait for everybody to agree on everything. But, but crucially, everybody doesn't have to agree on everything if you want to create effective change. And then we definitely see when we try to model this stuff out um, just globally and then down to country level, we see we can literally see, okay, what package of policy and investment could, for example, tip India's faster to electric vehicles and and the same, and we do that kind of on a case by case basis. And so you come to a country like Brazil and for electric vehicles, they'll be by our projections, one of the later um, countries to shift, but that doesn't mean there isn't good stuff going on there in terms of um, a lot of rapid uptake of renewable energy, for example. So yeah, it's it's a diverse picture, but in a good way that should, if we think it through, help us identify um, both who's got a shared interest in starting the change, which then starts to trigger others to join it, um, but also when we map out what the market is and the beneficiary space is, and on that latter note, um, it's important, I think, for everybody to recognise that um, lead the least developed world stands to benefit hugely from um, tipping to renewables and not making a kind of mucky transition through coal burning. So I'm thinking in particular of sub many sub-Saharan African nations um, where their, their basic uh, trade balance will be improved radically when they're not having to import both vehicles and oil and gas. Uh, they may still be importing electric vehicles, but if they're generating um, renewable energy in country, and they might well be exporting green hydrogen on tankers to the rest of the world, they're immediately going to be in a stronger position for development. It's a bit, a bit like uh, the, when telephony came to, to Africa, they, they leapfrogged and they didn't go to fixed line, they went straight to mobile. We've got a lot of in innovative solutions, particularly in countries like Nigeria and Kenya. Exactly. Again, innovation, as we talked about before, and, it, and it's wonderful to see because it's, it's part technological and it's part social. And that's also what underlies the positive tipping point sometimes is, is, is a sort of social dimension of uh, changing preferences, behaviours, ways of doing things. Um, and yeah, we, we can we can discuss whether that might be important in the realm of the food system, dietary choices and the possible tipping points to reduce the quarter of greenhouse gas emissions that come from how we use the land and how we eat. Um, it's interesting you use an, another word that I like is incentives, incentives in the system. And that's not to mean that governments have the sole responsibility for tackling climate change. Of course, they can't, but they can help in, encourage those tipping points with the correct incentives, because it's only it, it's only changes things on the margin with the right incentives behind them that will then lead to that compounding effect so you know the tipping point thinking is is very important in how you accelerate and scale change we've seen some beautiful examples of that andrew like here parochially in the uk in 2012 40 percent of our power was still coming from coal burning 
um, and it's down to near zero now, but it didn't take a enormous carbon tax to make, make that tipping point. It took a targeted and quite modest price on carbon in the power generation sector, together with some good policy around power sector reform, and the fact that public taxpayers' money had been being invested in building up renewable capacity in the UK, but uh, just a small price on carbon could tip the economics of coal bearing on to become unfavourable, and then capital pulled out, basically, and then the utilities followed suit and destroyed the coal burning power stations to make an irreversible tipping point, if ever there was one. Um, and we see other examples where progressive policy in Norway was a key key part of why they tipped for to electric vehicles first, along with several other fascinating factors. But also when we look in the bigger picture, we see those gains, those economies of scale that have been phenomenal for, say, solar panels. Well, then that's not just about a background of public money and government support and research and development, although that was absolutely crucial foundation. It was also about a big injection of private capital around uh, just before the big crash of 2007-8, basically, a big injection of capital into what were five um, Chinese solar PV manufacturing companies that floated on the US stock exchange. So yeah, a nice kind of combination of um, progressive policy that creates niches for those um, solar panels to be sold. And in that case, it was Germany who, who through their feed-in tariff for solar, created a niche for those Chinese companies to sell those solar panels and gain the economies of scale, the learning by doing. And then, yeah, that big injection of capital really kicked things off so that the price started to tumble as the scale went up. Yes, and the German experience is interesting as well because while they were pivotal in the acceleration in the, in the solar development of solar, their leading solar company at the time didn't make it and went yeah. bankrupt because of competition. And that, that's a really interesting element because we have to be very careful at saying being green is not a sufficient condition for being a good investment. All the usual caveats of competition, business model, strength of balance sheet and cash flow all come to the fore, forefront. But it, you know, so it is very much interwoven with good financial practice um, as well as good science. And it has, in the case of Germany, it had some fascinating um, political feedbacks as well, because once a sector had been created to install solar panels on people's roofs, and a bunch of people were getting employed in that sector, when a political change happened to a party that was much less supportive of green and uh, energy initiatives, they couldn't row back because it would have been political suicide to do so because they would have pissed off a massive growing um, cohort of employment and perceived benef social benefits. I'm always interested, you know, somebody in your position, you know, you work with uh, policy centres, you work with industry, you work with the investment uh, management world. 
Yeah, how are you looking at the innovation in the actual investment world and at some of the products that we talk about as an industry aligned to net zero? I know when we've talked before, you've not always been as complimentary about some of them. I just wonder how you, you see the aspirations of the investment world in being aligned to net zero. Well, I think you you have such an opportunity as the investment world to drive the change we all need at the same time as an outsider i would i would humbly suggest you're um held back by some of your internal systems and structures um sometimes the reward time scale for those doing the investing is an obstacle but clearly there are broader issues with the indices that are being used to measure supposed group, um, you know, green credentials of different investments. So there's a number of systemic things that could be uh, adjusted, shall we say, to uh, to move change more effectively. And I think actually to be better for you ultimately as a sector. But there's also, as we're all becoming well aware, we've got to watch very closely uh, for you know the quality, the transparency, and the reality of data that that's out there that companies are giving on their action on greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Um, one would be rightly skeptical about a lot of that uh, supposed data or statements that are being put out there, and we need to really rigorously uh, quantify what's actually happening rather than just what's rhetoric or um, gaming the system. Um, but that's doable. It's an attackable, solvable problem. Um, and I think uh, it's obviously a crucial ingredient to create, to underpinning a change. Yes, and it's that alignment with the real world that yeah, you know, we feel is key, and, and that's why we're developing the climate uh, horizon climate model with the help of your uh, your colleagues at the uh, Global Systems Institute at the University of Exeter. Very excited about that forward-looking projection and measuring companies' real-world outcomes and the probability of them achieving the net zero or a national net zero target. You know, I think sometimes there's an over too much false sense of precision in some of the data that we use. It tends to be very backward looking, quoting climate you know, temperature alignment to two decimal places to 2100 does seem to be an exercise in optimism. And certainly uh, no, no, having no error terms around it always seems to be, to be missing the point a little bit when you're talking about science and change. But you know, this is why we're very excited about being able to, to map and monitor and then challenge companies it is very easy to claim to be net zero for 2050, but actually achieving it is a is a very different matter. It is, but there is this tipping point opportunity to uh, achieve it more quickly or more effectively than perhaps you thought you could if you can tap into those uh, reinforcing feedback. So um, couldn't couldn't agree more in terms of uh, the overall. Um, prognosis but the way i think of the holistic climate challenge the right toolkit to approach it is a kind of risk opportunity analysis it's not 
some kind of giant cost benefit analysis at all and uh, we've got to deal um and act decide and act in a space which necessarily has uncertainty around it but i think as we've discussed it becomes apparent not only are there is there a sort of uncertainty around what temperature we're going to end up and the various risks of that but there's also um, a clear opportunity space that isn't just for the climate in making the, the transition or the transformation sooner. Um, there are, yeah, there's huge opportunities to accelerate a change that will also have other collateral benefits for the great majority. And the investment industry should embrace uncertainty. It is, after all, at the core of what we're trying trying to take advantage of is uncertainty creates mispricing. Mispricing is what we're looking to exploit to make money for our clients to meet their savings or retirement needs. And, you know, trying to make climate prescriptive by mechanistically, for example, reducing the amount of emissions at the portfolio level that's not linked to the real world seems to be almost uh, misleading. Exactly. And it's why I really felt that there's a natural alignment behind the kind of thinking I've been pursuing on Tipping Point, those risks and opportunities and and what you're professional at as a sector. (laughs) I mean, it's actually much harder to get, I think, uh, policymakers and the like thinking in systems and appreciating kind of stochastic uncertainty and how to manage risk and opportunity under uncertainty uh the joy of working with the with a good part of the um of the financial sector is it should be your bread and butter as you said uh, and the rewards for those who take advantage of these positive tipping points are potentially enormous and just you need the vision and the time horizon to to see that and sometimes politicians because of the their tenure don't always have the luxury that maybe investors do but you know a lot's gone on this year we've had a a a war in ukraine we've had soaring energy prices and interest rates and it reminds me that milton friedman you know, talking about politics, did say there's nothing like a crisis to spur innovation and policy change. And when you look at the political economy now, do you think we have the right sort of policy frameworks for um, encouraging and supporting change? Or or is it just going to be the private sector that's going to get on with it? We do have, uh, in some nations and contexts, some supportive policy frameworks, and then in others we don't. So that's the <laughs> that's the beauty or the tragedy of the world. Um, it's a very interesting moment when that war kind of acts on all of us and the economy as an unexpected and quite large perturbation. And then sometimes we see it triggering this sort of a rhetorical or short-term political push to return to fossil fuel extraction when, when in fact it, for many of us that's completely kind of counterintuitive and it, it's opening up a huge opportunity space to push the transition to renewable energy and all the rest sooner and faster. Um, I already mentioned how given the gas prices you know you've got green you've already got a market for green hydrogen and green ammonia in fertilizer you've got several other markets uh, opened up because of this strange perturbation 
So it it's that classic thing that it comes back down to the to huh, sometimes that unfortunately the politicians, not necessarily the civil service behind them, <laughs> and whether they're sort of with it and smart enough to take to see the longer view and to take the decisions that, when integrated over time, are going to be uh, the net the really net beneficial ones, or as you say, whether they're going to be sort of distracted by the short-term whirlwind or or just fail to see the, the system's view. Um, but yeah, I have to say that 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 picture varies from, you know, nation to nation and uh, civil service to civil service, I guess. <laughs> well, I think, you know, from, from the investor perspective, the competition between nations on the energy transition is probably one of the best ways to spur that, you know, the developments and the transition that we've been talking about and you know, talking to my portfolio managers, they're very optimistic, um, ironically. And this is one of the things in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of crisis, you know, our, uh, our friend Milton Friedman might have got it right. You know, there is a lot actually at the moment that you can be optimistic about if you're an investor, because things have uh, are not efficiently priced, and we are moving yeah. from a world where people just bought, if you like, beta bought the market. Now they're having to differentiate, and there is an awful lot of differentiation that these tipping points uh, will lead to. So, you know, I'd like to, you know, I'd like to leave on a, a on an upbeat note. Um, actually, one last question before we wrap up, and, and I ask this of all our our question uh, our, our guests, and maybe if you can answer in yeah, less than two minutes, but. Bull and bear, sorry, optimistic and pessimistic, sorry, these technical finance bits of jargon. What's one thing that you're optimistic about and one thing that you're pessimistic about? <laughs> well, I'm optimistic about what's in the real data for the phenomenal decline in price of renewable energy and associated electrification of of everything, I think, or hydrogen production, the other things I've talked about. So I'm optimistic that the real economics, if you like, is coming in favour of the positive tipping points and of accelerating change. Um, and that's good, because the thing I'm kind of pessimistic about is the potential for us to collectively through some governance structures, whether it's COP27 or whatever, uh, to sort of policy ourselves completely out of trouble. Um, I think that ultimately it's a, a kind of alliance between the, the, the real economics of this and some intelligent systems thinking policy making that that harbors the greatest chance for change but luckily i think the the forces of change are coming now through the economy and also from social action in a way that will cause even the more retrogressive or retrograde kind of politicians and political positions to 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 have to come along um, with the transition anyway, because it'll become unstoppable. Yes, I like the idea of unstoppable, powerful forces. Tim, thank you very much for your time today. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Organising the Future is available on Spotify, 
Amazon and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode. If you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at Joe Hambro Capital Management or at Regnan, please do contact your representative. Details about us, about our funds, and our approach to investments are on our website. Just search for J.O. Hambro in your favorite browser. Thank you.